All right, Matthew chapter 24 is where we're going to be headed this morning. And so if you want to turn your Bibles that direction, I'm just going to remind you that we are in the middle of this uh, section of the gospel according to Matthew where he's come into the city of Jerusalem. And we're going to see the king that they thought they wanted, that they then resisted, they're now going to flatly reject. And so in Matthew 21, we see the triumphal entry of Jesus into the city of Jerusalem. We see then after that in chapter 22, them questioning Jesus. They actually fulfilled prophecy as they questioned Jesus. They look at the lamb that was to be slain, and they made sure that he was perfect. He was worthy of this calling to be the lamb that was given for the sin of the world. Now in Matthew 23, where we were last week, we saw Jesus pronouncing the woes upon the scribes and the Pharisees. These uh, religious leaders, they thought he was coming to judge Rome, when in fact he pronounces woes upon these religious leaders who weren't truly following them with their heart. Their biggest uh, conviction was mercy. They were not merciful upon the people. They showed no mercy whatsoever. And so from there, he pronounces judgment upon them. And now in chapters 24 and 25, we have the final uh, private teaching of Jesus that's recorded in Matthew. So last week, we had the final public message. This week, we have the final private teaching in Matthew, and it's called the Olivet Discourse. It's just a fancy way for saying teaching. Now, I've told you for several weeks now, in fact, months, almost a year, that uh, Matthew's written to a Jewish audience. And what the Jews loved uh, more than anything is they loved the law of Moses. And we know that the law of Moses has five books, uh, ex- uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And so what Matthew does is he actually takes five teachings of Jesus and he pairs them together with the five books of Moses. And so he takes these five discourses and uh, not... Uh, not so insignificantly, he links them to the five books of Moses. And what we mean by that is the Sermon on the Mount, that first sermon that Jesus gave, it lines up with the book of Genesis. We see Jesus going through the origins of uh, the beginnings of the church. He's actually starting his ministry. We see then the mission discourse in Matthew chapter 10. And we have uh, Jesus giving call to these called out Uh, apostles. Apostle just means sent one. He calls them to go out into the mission field. What do we see in the book of Exodus? But God calling his people to go out to the promised land. Then we had the parabolic discourse, the kingdom in parables. And we see the, the main focal point of the kingdom of heaven that Jesus is talking about is one of purity. And that links together with Leviticus. The key theme in Leviticus is be holy for I am holy. And so you see the tie of holiness. Then in Matthew 18, where we were a few weeks back, we see Jesus giving direction to the church in the church discourse, how it was to be organized, how it was to operate. What do we find in the book of Numbers? But not just Numbers, like the name says, but we find God actually giving organization to a nation. He shows a nation how they are to operate, how they are to live in community, but not apart from the world, actually in the world, but a set-apart people, a light for Jesus. And so that's what he addresses in Matthew 18. And now we arrive to Matthew 24 and 25, this Olivet Discourse. It's called that because he teaches it from the Mount of Olives. This is that mountain range that's right there to the east of the temple as Jesus is headed out of the temple and he's headed back into the area of Bethany. They grab a hold of him and they want to know what exactly he was talking about back in Matthew 23. You talked about all this judgment that was going to happen. Let us know Fill us in on what you're talking about. And this links up to uh, Deuteronomy. And in the book of Deuteronomy, one of the interesting things that Moses does is he has the the nation of Israel, one of them get on the Mount Gerizim, and one of them get on Mount Ebal, and they they announce back and forth uh, blessings on one side and cursings on the other. Here's what you get if you do what God says. Here's what you get if you don't do what God says. It was sort of like the less filling tastes great commercial when we were kids. Remember that? Okay, I'm the only one that heard that. You'd hear that in in stadiums. Less filling, tastes great. All right, that's my last Miller Lite reference for the whole message, I promise. But it was like that. They would cheer back and forth. Here's the blessing. Here's the curse. And what we looked at last week in Matthew 23 is Jesus gives the cursings, but in Matthew 5, the beginning of his message, there in the Sermon on the Mount, he gives the blessings. And so we get that same imagery taking place. 
But in the Olivet Discourse, specifically what they were concerned about is the end times. They want to know, how is this thing going to wrap up? You're talking about all this destruction that's going to come about. What's this look like? And so, for years throughout church history, this section of Scripture has been dissected and helping people understand their eschatology. That's just a big, fancy word for study of the end times. And so, uh, we are going to look at that today. Now, for some who love eschatology and study of end times, you're really excited. For others, you're like, what in the world did I just, I should have read ahead. I knew I should have read ahead. But here's the thing, um, for all of us, this is important. Now, you may ask why. Uh, here's just one reason. We'll have several throughout the teaching today and next week. But our view of end times drastically affects how we view God's character. So when we look at uh, God bringing his church through the tribulation period, if you're one of those uh, people, uh, if you look at him like that, then you look at a God that isn't looking to actually save his bride. He's not looking to care for his bride and pluck her out of impending wrath. And so it changes the way we view God and his character based upon how we look at the study of the end times. And so as a big picture, introductory, I just want to share with you this next chart which shows where we stand as a church, namely where I stand, and, and where our group stands on our eschatology, our view of the end times. And so here's a chart. You can snap a picture of this. There's a bunch of uh, biblical references up here. And I want to encourage you, if you've got a different view of the end times, don't think that we can't still get along. We can all get along. Uh, but if you want to talk about it, we'll do that after church. I want to also encourage you to bring your Bible along with you. And we'll go through that together in Scripture. Don't bring other people's books, other people's ideas. Bring the Word of God, and we'll, we'll go through it. But where the end times really should start is uh, at the cross. Jesus' death, his burial, his resurrection. Fast forward then to the day of Pentecost. We see the beginning of the church. This is what Jesus is calling the harvest. This is the summer harvest period or the church age. In Acts chapter 2, the church gets that Holy Spirit power given to her. And then immediately Peter is able to go out and preach with power. And so we see that take place and begin the beginning of the church age. Now, uh, it is our belief we have a, a pre-tribulation view of wrath, meaning the church will be actually taken out before the tribulation in what's known as the rapture. Now, you've heard that word probably in churches, and if you've been around church very often, you've probably heard folks throw out this, uh, this thing like, hey, you know the rapture is never actually mentioned in the New Testament, right? Like that word rapture doesn't show up in the New Testament anywhere which is actually correct um, because the word rapture comes from the Latin word rapturo and the New Testament was written in Greek. So there's all sorts of Latin words that don't show up in your New Testament because it wasn't written in Latin. It was written in Greek. But where we get this idea of rapture, one spot I can point to in Scripture is from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, in particular verse 17. And Paul is addressing the church at Thessalonica who's particularly worried about the end times. What are they worried about? They're worried that they already missed it. They're worried they already missed the rapture because they're still stuck here. They were getting persecuted. They're like, Jesus must have come back and we're left behind. Apparently, they saw the Kirk Cameron movies even before you guys did. And so they're concerned about being left behind. Now, in verse uh, 15, what Paul says is, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord that all who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. In verse 16, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. But then we who are alive remain and shall be caught up together with him in the clouds and meet the Lord in the air. Thus we shall always be with the Lord." So Paul is saying, we will be gathered up together and caught up with the Lord. Now, in the Greek, that word uh, caught up is the word harpanzo, which if you translate into Latin is rapturo, and that's where we get our word rapture from. And so the word rapture does show up right there in your Greek. So if you're looking at the Greek, this makes a lot of sense. If not, you're going to have to take my word for it or go back and check it out for yourself. Now, this is what we view as the rapture and also the beginning of the tribulation period. 
This is that seven-day period that's covered in Revelation. It's also covered in Daniel chapter 9. So uh, we view the church being removed from the scene, and now uh, the Antichrist is free to work. He's going to begin by actually striking peace. He's going to look at this whole scene that, that is a world that has had millions of Christians taken out of it immediately. You can imagine the crazy scene, and he's going to begin uh, with peace. The world is going to be going through all kind of cataclysmic events, but then at the three-and-a-half-year mark, uh, the Antichrist is going to unleash all hell upon earth. He's going to break his peace treaty. He's going to come after the nation of Israel and Christians, and, and it's going to be an all-out slaughter of people. So that is going to lead us all the way to the end of the tribulation period where Jesus will come back triumphantly as the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and he's going to set everything straight. He's going to wipe out his enemies, and he's going to establish this 1,000-year reign. This is the millennial kingdom of Jesus. He's going to set himself up on earth. He's going to come back with 10,000 of his saints. Who are his saints? That's the church. We could actually come back with King Jesus. We get to rule and reign with him for a thousand years. But who are we ruling and reigning over? The people that were left through the tribulation period, those that actually survived. The earth isn't going to be completely wiped out. Millions will survive, and they will live in perfect peace with King Jesus for a thousand years. Until God does something interesting, he actually allows Satan to be unleashed for one final run. One short window, just a few days, he's going to let Satan out. Now, you may be scratching your head and go, why in the world would God do that? The reason is because those people that survived the tribulation still deserve to make a choice. They've lived for a thousand years with King Jesus, ruling perfectly. They still deserve to have a choice. Who are you going to follow after a thousand years of perfection? Jesus, who you've seen rule and reign in righteousness, in peace, in security? Or are you going to follow this joker? So God gives them a choice because he loves us. And love always demands a choice. Forced love isn't love at all. In fact, he gets you 40 to 50 years in prison based upon what I know about forced love. So it's not love whatsoever to force someone into that situation. And God's not about to do that. And so... Uh, after people are able to make that final decision, and believe it or not, after a thousand years, some will still choose Satan. Isn't that amazing about the human condition? That after a thousand years of peace, there are some will, that will still say, I want it my way over his way. And so when, when you see psychologists that make this claim that if you just took people, people are naturally good, we're all good, I'm okay, you're okay, we're all just lovey-lovey, the problem is our nature. If you took us and put us in a perfect nature, we would, then, uh, we would then show our goodness. When the reality is, uh, we have a nature issue. We have an S-I-N disease. It permeates throughout history, and it is, uh, it is not ashamed. And so what you find is people are actually uh, naturally not good. We are all sinful creatures. That's why Jesus said you must be born again. Because you have a nature problem, and so do I. We have to die to the old nature to be able to live with him in uh, perfection throughout the rest of human history. And so, we'll see Jesus, at the end of all this, he's going to cast Satan off one final time. Him and anyone that wants to follow him go into a lake of fire, and then a new heaven and a new earth. Why? Because even heaven has been touched by sin. Right? Satan fell from heaven. So God's going to roll it all up like a scroll is what Isaiah says. He's just going to roll it up, and he's going to bring about a new heaven and a new earth. And that's uh, our view of the end times. So after the longest introduction in the history of introductions, let's get to Matthew 24. Matthew 24 is uh, Jesus is approached by his disciples, and they ask about when will these things take place. He essentially breaks it up into three different areas. We're going to cover the first two today. Uh, he's going to look at the end times for the nations. That would be the world at large in verses 1 through 14. And then the end times for Israel in verses 15 through 36. Now, next week we'll look at the end times for the church. So just hang on if you like your end times. Just you wait. You've got one more week of it. So let's pick up in Matthew 24, verse 1. 
And then Jesus went out and departed from the temple. Remember, he's leaving this scene where he's talking with the scribes and the Pharisees. He's departing from the temple. He's going back to Bethany where he was staying with his friends, Mary, Martha, Lazarus. They lived just a few miles outside of town. And his disciples came up to him or came up to show him the buildings of the temple. And so as they're walking out, his disciples go, hey, Jesus, check out these temple buildings. I mean, isn't this place awesome? And it was a sight to behold. This is the second temple, the one built by Herod. It was gorgeous. But isn't it funny um, that they decide to give the man who called himself the temple of God a tour of the temple? And I wonder how many times uh, when we're in prayer, we have to feel like we need to give God a tour. You ever feel like that? Like, Lord, I'd like you to be with my Aunt Edna down in Oklahoma. You remember Aunt Edna? She's the one. Her first husband passed away, but then she married Bobby Joe over there. They live down in Tulsa now, Lord, and uh, they got three kids. I mean, two. Uh, she's got two. He's got one. They don't have any kids together, but uh, I just want you to be with her, and she's got a real bad sciatic, Lord. And, you know, she hurt that sciatic back when she fell in the kitchen. She slipped. She was making some gravy, slipped on a little bit. I mean, we go through a whole story with God, and the reality is um, he already knew all that. He knew everything there was to know about Aunt Edna, about Uncle Bobby Joe. He knew all these things, and yet we, we so often want to give God the full tour, and what he really is after is your heart. Just come to him with what you have. Lay it down there at his feet. Pour it out there, right there before him. It's not that he minds you giving him the whole tour, but in, in an effort to save everybody a little bit of time, just get to the point. That's essentially what uh, I'm saying here. So now that people are offended, verse 2. And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. And so as they're giving Jesus the tour of the temple, he says, Look, guys, um, this is awesome and all, but it ain't going to last. This whole thing is going to come down. Now, this is very difficult for them to believe because the stones on the temple were massive. The picture I put up here on the screen is I took this of the Wailing Wall at night a few years ago when I was in Jerusalem. But this Wailing Wall that Jews gather to pray at, um, that's not even a wall of the temple. That's the retaining wall that holds back the dirt that's on the temple mount. That just shows you the size of what we're talking about. And what Jesus says is, look, you're all excited about this, but these stones, they're going to be, they're going to be cast down. Now, they couldn't hardly fathom this, but what we find is in human history, just about 40 years later in 70 AD, uh, the Jews did what they like to do so often. They decided to rise up against the government that's over the top of them. They're going to have themselves an insurrection and overthrow Rome and kick them out of Israel. Instead, what took place is the Roman government came in and they laid the smackdown on them. They destroyed Israel, in particular Jerusalem, from one end to the other. But they were told, the soldiers were given specific instructions, don't touch the temple. The Romans loved architecture. And so this was an architectural marvel. They were told, look, whatever you do, destroy everything else, but leave the temple so we've got ourselves a tourist destination. Uh, but what they didn't count on is that one soldier accidentally throws a torch into the temple and it caught fire. A tremendous fire. So hot did the fire get that the gold that was inlaid in the walls of the temple actually melted and went down into the crevices of all these huge stones. And so what the Roman soldiers loved even more than following directions was gold. And they began to pick apart the mortar, the bricks of this temple stone by stone, pulling it apart so they could pry the gold out that, from each and every one of these stones. And what there is to this day is nothing. When you get up on the Temple Mount, you can't even tell where the foundation used to be. Not one stone was left upon another. And what we find is that in spite of what man says and the direction man gives, is that God's word is going to stand. Now then, verse 3. And now, as he said on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us when these things will be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. And so they come with three pretty huge questions, but notice with me, they tied it all together. 
their thought, their belief was uh, the temple being destroyed, that must be the end of the world. I mean, the temple was their, was their whole deal. And so they looked at this and they said, listen, if this is going to happen, this must be the end of the world. So tell us about all of these things, about but when the temple will be destroyed, when you're going to come back, and when the age is going to end. And so what we find is Jesus is now going to give them a prophetic look into the end of the age. He's going to answer their question. But I want to remind you or let you know, if, the, if you've never heard this before, that prophecy is not just a mountain peak. It's actually a mountain range. When prophets would look out into things that God would unveil to them, they would actually give a view on what they saw, but they were seeing different peaks throughout human history. But to them, it all just looked like one set of events. And so much like the picture on the screen, prophecy is a mountain range. Sometimes there's a a nearer peak and a farther peak, but Jesus gives them all this all at the same time. So we're going to do our best to uncover some of these things. Now then, verse 4. And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And so Jesus' first warning to them was, Beware of false messiahs. Now it's interesting to me that in human history, there were no false messiahs until the time of Jesus. Have you noticed that? There, were, there, were no, there was no one proclaiming to be the Christ until after his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And now the reason why that is is because why would anyone make a forfeit unless there was an original? And so if you wanted to go out and make counterfeit money, you would be an absolute idiot to go make $200 bills. Why? Because there's no $200 bill. There's no real thing. And so until Jesus came on the scene, there was no need for anyone to pretend to be him because they needed the real thing first. Now then, verse 6. And you will hear wars and rumors of wars. and See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. In verse 7. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in various places places in verse 8 and all these things are the beginning of sorrows and so what we see is there will be uh, first of all wars and rumors of wars I did a little bit of research on the Google machine this week and in the last 3,421 years there's only been 268 recorded that did not have war going on we are a warring people we like to fight one another in fact uh, in the last 100 years, there's been no years in the last century that have had no war taking place. Now then, when we see nation rising up against nation, when you begin to do some research, you find that uh, of the top 10 most heavily armed countries in the world, five of them are located in the Middle East. Now that is not because it's a population epicenter. It's because these folks are getting ready to do some battle. They don't even believe in what God is saying, and yet they're doing exactly what God said they were going to do. They are arming themselves. Uh, I was fascinated to find that the second highest uh, average gun per person is in Yemen, of all places. So, I mean, it's just fascinating to see as people actually follow along what Jesus is saying. Now then, nation rising up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. The next thing he says, and there will be famines. Now, don't look at the screen and cheat, but the largest reason for famine is not the weather. Did you realize that? The number one cause of famine is actually overpopulation. Okay, now you can look. It's overpopulation is actually the largest reason behind famines. And so, doing just a little bit of math, I did the research, and the world did not reach a billion people until 1857. There was less than a billion people until uh, just a couple hundred years ago. 1857, we hit the billion mark. Today, in 2021, there are 7.8 billion people on the planet. Now, if you take that uh, rate of growth at a 3% growth rate, not 1.03, but a 3% growth rate, which is the, the difference between live births and natural deaths that's taking place, and you just multiply that out for 100 years, that means that in 2121, we will have 150 billion people on this planet. So, 
again, doing a little bit of math, just looking at the total amount of inhabitable square footage that's available for every man, woman, and child, if you had 150 billion people on the planet, uh, that means every person would have roughly 4,000 square feet that they can live off of. That is some crazy math. Now, if you take those numbers out just another 25 years, you find that number actually doubles, which means our available square footage gets cut in half. You begin to get an idea of how bad famine could actually get as overpopulation takes place. Now, there are all kinds of uh, population experts that say the numbers are going to decline and take a dip and go the other direction, but uh, third world countries is where the population is expanding the most. And what I also know about people, uh, good luck getting them to stop doing that. I mean, they like that a lot, a whole lot. And so th there's not going to be any kind of psychologist that's going to be able to tell them, hey, look at this chart. Make sure this dips back the other way. It's not going to happen. And so clearly uh, God is going to have to intervene. Now then, the next thing that Jesus mentions is pestilences, which uh, this would have been talked about far differently a few years ago. We would have been talking about uh, AIDS epidemic or Ebola, and then we hit 2020. And the word pestilence can also be translated a pandemic. Now, no matter where you fall on this side of the things politically, you may believe it to be somewhat of a farce or uh, all in to COVID-19, but the reality is the thing you cannot deny is the world shut down for this thing. There was a full-on stoppage of everything we knew that took place. And so uh, we see Jesus actually giving uh, air to this, that this is going to be happening. And it will not be the last time we see this kind of thing take place. The world now knows what it looks like. And so we're going to see more of this. He goes on to say earthquakes in various places. Since 1800, the number of earthquakes worldwide has gone up 300%. That's a lot. Now then, finally, where Jesus uh, lands in this place is he says, all these things are the beginning of sorrows. The beginning of sorrows is the same phrase as uh, when a woman has birth pains. That these things are all like a woman in travail, in birth. She's having contractions. And what ladies can tell us far better than me, so I'm not trying to pretend like I've been there. Ladies, don't get upset. But that these birth pains, uh, they start off just randomly, and then they begin to increase in frequency, and they increase in intensity. And so when you look at this chart on the bottom right, that's the number of world disasters since the 1800s, natural disasters uh, on the left, and then where we are today. It looks like one of those charts you see as a lady is in uh, labor, right? I remember when Angela was in labor, they did the, the thing around her belly and it would measure the contractions and would have the little, look like an EKG going up and down when she'd have a contraction. It would spike and then it'd go back down. And they had all the other ladies that were in other rooms going through labor. Uh, it had them on other charts on the same screen. And so I would cheer for her, like, come on, honey, you can do better. That lady in 321 is beating you. You can... So that was not the kind of encouragement she was looking for, it turned out, and she told me to shut it. So, but anyway, the point is, the contractions got closer and closer and closer and more intense, knowing that what was getting ready to take place, but a birth, right? Something was going to happen, a major event. And so we see the same thing as sin is beginning to give birth. The earth is going through birth pains and having contractions. Now then, verse 9 then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. In verse 10, and then many will be offended and will betray one another and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And so what we see is from the birth pains to the actual birth, the transition here is the rapture of the church. And so as Jesus is saying, it's going to be all this at the beginning, and then the child is going to come forth, and then they will deliver you up. Who is the you he's talking about? This is people that are left behind after the rapture of the church. Many are left behind to be killed, but this is interesting. He says, and they will hate you and kill you for my name's sake. But I thought the church just got raptured. So who's still left? Well, the reality is, as much as we talk about revival in church 
And we should talk about revival. We should want people to come to know Jesus. It should be exciting. Um, the largest revival in human history will take place after the church leaves. That there will be millions upon millions of people who sat in churches just like this Sunday after Sunday that didn't really pay attention to what was going on. But believe me, uh, post-rapture, they're going to go, oh, God, we missed it. Oh, we missed it. And they're going to dig these Bibles back out, and they're going to go back through Scripture, and there's going to be a huge revival, and yet there's also going to be a huge amount of tribulation. They will kill you, and they will hate you for my name's sake. They will be offended. They will betray one another, and they will hate one another. And many false prophets, if we thought false prophets were prevalent now, just wait until the tribulation period and, and yet what Jesus is going to go on to say in verse 12, he's going to say, because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold, but he who endures to the end will be saved. And so the encouragement here for the tribulation saints, as they're called, is endure. It's actually the same thing Jesus tells us when it comes to living out this life. We are called to endure. In most days, that is exactly what it feels like. We're just trying to get to the next one. Endure, hang on, and go. And that's precisely what he's going to encourage them in this tribulation period. But he says something interesting in verse 12. He says, because lawlessness will abound. That uh, I'm going to flip back to 2 Thessalonians really quickly and talk about lawlessness for just a second as Paul addresses this to the church in Thessalonica. Remember, they were concerned they missed the rapture. Paul's going to send them a couple letters to actually encourage them to keep going. But what he says is he shares about the end times in verse 7. He says, For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. So there's already this mystery of lawlessness that's taking place in your society. But then he goes on to say, Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, speaking of the Antichrist, who the Lord will consume with breath out of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. And so this mystery of lawlessness will be revealed when he who restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Who is, Jesus, uh, who is Paul writing about? He is writing about the Holy Spirit. The one who restrains lawlessness is the Holy Spirit. Now, where does the Holy Spirit exist? Predominantly, it's in you and me. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And so when we are taken out off the scene, when the church is taken away, then the mystery of lawlessness is going to be revealed. The point is, we are what is actually holding back lawlessness. You guys are the salt and the light of the earth. You understand? So even though we don't think we do a very good job of holding back lawlessness, uh, just like Bachman Turner Overdrive said, but baby, you just ain't seen nothing yet. I mean, it, it is going to get full-on crazy around here. And so that's what Paul is addressing. That's what Jesus is saying here in Matthew 24. He's saying, because lawlessness will now abound, the love of many will will grow cold. People will be loveless. There will be no love for one another. If there is no Christ there, then there is no love in that spot. And so it's going to be a, a dark place. The encouragement given to those is to endure to the end. And then in verse 14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations, and then the end will come. And so the gospel message will continue to be preached even until the end of the age. Now, this verse has been taken and been used in evangelical churches uh, to encourage people to go to the ends of the earth to preach the gospel. By the way, that is awesome. You should want to go to the ends of the earth to promote the gospel message. But the other piece of it that I was at least told as a kid is uh, the reason Jesus hadn't come back is because we haven't got to the ends of the earth. So now it's on me. I'm now to blame for Jesus not coming back because I haven't got my butt out there and evangelized. Now, I again want to encourage you to evangelize as many people as you can. But here's the thing. God's not solely dependent upon you to get the message out. <laughs> he is not held up because you haven't done your part. You should do your part. But he is saying, look, I am going to make sure this message carries out to the end of the age. 
Three different groups that he's included in the book of Revelation. First of all, 144,000 Jewish believers, Messianic Jews that get the message, that understand they are going to be on fire for Jesus, sharing the message. Secondly, two witnesses in Revelation 11, thought to be potentially Moses and Elijah. We're not exactly sure, but they're going to preach the message of repentance there in Revelation 11. And then last but not least, if that isn't enough to get the message out there, in Revelation 14, God's going to send angels actually going overhead to promote the message of Jesus Christ. He says in verse 6, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God, give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. I share all this to say, this is how badly God wants people to get the message. He's willing to put an angel in the air to preach the gospel so that no one has an excuse, so that all could hear. And so this is what Jesus is saying, even till the end of the age, I'm going to make sure the message goes forth. Now that's the end times for the nations. We then transition to the end times for Israel, picking up in verse 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, Whoever reads, let him understand. Then, verse 16, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. So how do we know Jesus is addressing the Jewish nation? He says, those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Where is Judea located? South of Jerusalem. He's speaking now to the Jewish people. And he's talking to them about a particular event known as the abomination of desolation. Now, this is covered in two different locations in the book of Daniel. I talked to you about prophecy being sometimes a near fulfillment, sometimes a far fulfillment, two different peaks. The first peak was actually achieved in 170 B.C., so 200 years before the birth of Christ. We see a guy come on the scene known as Antiochus Epiphanes. Now, this was a guy that was actually in charge of the whole Israeli region as well as up into Syria, And the Jews, doing what they love to do, they decide to revolt against this guy. Now, he was a particularly awful guy. He called himself Epiphanes because he thought he was the reincarnation of the god Zeus. So he believed himself to be a god. He told people they need to worship him. The Jews rallied around, raised up against him, and said, We are not going to worship you, little man. To which he came into Jerusalem and killed 100,000 men in the streets, slaughtered them like animals. And then uh, Antiochus Epiphanes went into the temple, this same temple that Jesus is uh, talking about, and he slaughtered a pig right there on the altar. Now, little Jewish boys and girls know uh, this is not a great event for them. It completely desecrated their temple. He took the blood of the pig, he wiped it on the walls, he actually forced the priest to eat raw pork. So I love bacon, but not raw bacon, not great. So you can see the kind of desolation that he brought about. Now, this whole event caused another uprising by a guy named Judas Maccabeus. So if you've heard of the Maccabean time frame, this is the guy, this is the event that caused them to rise up. They kick Antiochus Epiphanes out. They stand on their own two feet. And in fact, the, the temple there, it ran out of oil in the lights of the menorah. For eight days, they had no oil in the lamps, and yet the lamps did not go out. This unbelievable miracle which is still celebrated to this day, known as the Festival of Lights or Hanukkah. So this is the event that surrounds why they celebrate Hanukkah. Now, Jesus is talking about this in Matthew 24, and he says, when you see the abomination of desolation. That can't be this event. It happened 200 years before. And so he's talking about uh, Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. In Daniel 9, 27, Daniel writes, And then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. The he he's talking about is the Antichrist. Shall make a covenant, shall make a peace treaty for one week, or one week of years. A seven-year peace treaty he's going to have there in the Middle East between the Muslims and the Jews. 
the Jews have an issue. They need a temple in order to actually have sacrifice and worship. They don't have one. The Muslims have a mosque on top of the Temple Mount now. It just so happens to be located in the court of the Gentiles. So where uh, Israel is going to build their new temple is on the Holy of Holies, where the original temple was constructed, but they need a peace treaty in order to make that happen. And so this Antichrist is going to strike up a peace treaty, but in the middle of the week, at the three-and-a-half-year mark, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abominations shall make shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. And so the abomination of desolation that the Antichrist is going to bring about is he's going to stand in the temple at the three-and-a-half-year mark, and he's going to declare that he is God, and all need to worship him. The Jews are going to realize the blinders are going to be taken off. They're going to realize just who they've gotten into bed with. They've, they've gone into covenant with this man, and they're going to turn against him. And when they turn against him, he is going to unleash all hell on earth. Uh, Zechariah chapter 13, verses 8 and 9 tell us that two-thirds of the nation of Israel are going to die at the hand of the Antichrist. And one-third is going to be uh, saved as they flee from his uh, evil reign. And so they're going to flee off, and this is what Jesus is talking about is this particular event. He's going to say in verse 17, Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. Again, in the Middle East, they hang out on their housetops. They get a little bit of a breeze in the middle of the day. He's speaking to the Jews. He's going to say, look, don't go downstairs to get anything out of the house. Verse 18, let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. Why? Because on the Sabbath, travel is more difficult. It's things shut down in Israel on the Sabbath. In fact, if you get yourself uh, on a Sabbath elevator, uh, on a Shabbat elevator, on a Saturday, you have to stop at every floor because they thought that pushing buttons is work. And so if you get yourself stuck on one of those bad boys, you're stopping at every stinking floor on the way up and the way down. Travel is made difficult. That's what Jesus is saying. And so beware of your travels because all hell is going to be unleashed. In verse 22, unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those, way, those days will be shortened. And so what Jesus is saying is, look, if it wasn't for God's mercy, if God hadn't have been merciful in those days, I think that's important to note that even in God's judgment, there's always mercy. He is looking to actually forgive. This is why Ezekiel writes what God says is that I have no joy in the death of the wicked. He's not looking that anybody should actually perish, but all should live and have everlasting life. Now, this last verse has caused a debate in the church because what Jesus says is that unless those days were shortened, no flesh shall be saved, but for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. So that must be talking about the church, right? I mean, we're the elect. And so there have been many that said this is why the church has to go through the tribulation. Um, but as we study through our Old Testament as well, uh, God doesn't refer to the church first as the elect. The first group he refers to as his elect in Isaiah 11 is Israel. There are three different groups that are actually called out as the elect in the Bible. The church, Israel, and the tribulation saints. And so all three of these groups could interchangeably be called the elect, but Jesus here is specifically addressing the nation of Israel. Now then, verse 23, Then if anyone says to you, Look, here is the Christ, or there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I've told you this beforehand. Therefore, if they say to you, Look, he's in the desert, do not go out, or look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. And so what Jesus is giving them a warning of don't listen to any special locations or, or hidden areas like New York in 1921 where Jesus, according to Jehovah's Witnesses, supposedly came back, and, except he kept himself hidden. 
in a little area, and he would only speak to the chosen. So Jesus is specifically addressing them from 1921. He's not going to come to a hidden place in a locked away chamber. He's also not going to come in special revelation to people like Joseph Smith believed in the late 1800s where he was given the Book of Mormon supposedly because he had additional insight. Jesus is saying, look, don't believe or listen to any of these coming with a false word, but when I come back, everybody's going to know it. I'm going to make sure it flashes in the sky. That's the second coming of Christ. Now then, verse 28. For wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will gather together. That verse, I have no idea what Jesus is talking about. (laughs) I really don't. And I think, by the way, that's okay. I think it's okay to not know exactly what Jesus is talking about in every one of these spots. And so I love to listen uh, to Pastor Chuck Smith and what Pastor Chuck says when he gets to spots he doesn't know. He says, I file this away for further information. I am just going to file it away for further information. Now, a possible explanation for this could be a nation gathering together to actually fight against Jesus in Revelation chapter 19. The nations of the earth are so obstinate, they decide to gather together there in the final battle, the battle of Armageddon in the valley of Megiddo, and they're going to fight against Jesus. And there in Revelation 19, if you want to read a little bit about that, uh, I'll give you a little inside track. It's not much of a battle. He's going to come in on a, ride ho- on a white horse, and he is going to proceed to out of the sword that comes out of his mouth, lay a whooping down on all those nations that have gathered up against him. In fact, it reminds me of 1988, uh, Tyson and Spinks. If any of you were alive for that, you know, look, uh, this was supposed to be a huge battle. It was going to be a battle royale. I was at a friend's house. His dad had the pay-per-view, and we were messing around in the yard just an extra minute or two. We arrive in the living room to see Michael Spinks laying on the mat. 90 seconds, he got knocked out by Mike Tyson. I'm telling you, this is going to be way less of a battle, and there's going to be uh, bodies and carcasses that could be what Jesus is talking about here in verse 28. Now then, uh, verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of heaven will be shaken and the sign of the son of man will appear in heaven and then all tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And so we see Jesus coming back triumphantly. These massive cataclysmic uh, astrological events are taking place. Jesus comes into the scene, and yet isn't it interesting what we just read, that the tribes of the earth will actually mourn. Why will they mourn? Well, remember again who Jesus is addressing. He's addressing the nation of Israel in this spot. They missed their Messiah at his first coming. So Zechariah chapter 13 verse 6 says that when they see him coming in, they're going to look at his hands and they're going to say, hey, what happened to your hands? And he's going to say, in the house of my friends is where I received these wounds. And they're going to mourn because they're going to realize, oh, wait a minute, we, we missed him. We did that. We actually crucified our Messiah at his first coming. And so it's going to be this time of mourning, and yet Jesus is going to come back with great glory and power. And then in verse 31, and he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the earth to the other. And so as their Savior, he's actually going to collect and gather back all the nation of Israel together. The Jews will be brought back. Now what we see is, interestingly enough, historically, this has already begun. On May 14, 1948, after World War II, after the atrocities of the Holocaust, for the first time really in human history, the entire world was actually compassionate towards the nation of Israel and towards the Jewish people. And so in a day, an edict was made. It was declared that the nation of Israel would once again exist. Now this is fascinating on several fronts. Uh, first of all, because Throughout human history, 
No country has ever existed more than four generations where they did not have a homeland. They were assimilated into wherever they got dispersed. Uh, by way of example, have you seen a Babylonian running around lately? Anybody seen a Babylonian? Didn't think so. Anybody seen an Assyrian lately? That's what I thought. You know why? Because they ain't no more. So they're gone. They've been assimilated into other countries for this exact reason. And yet, on May 14, 1948, the nation of Israel was reborn. They still had their language. They still had their religion intact. They still had their cultural identity intact. Not after four generations, after 2,000 years. <laughs> That's some kind of resurrection story, folks. And so as Isaiah says, this is, this is so fascinating to me. You guys can tune out. It's okay. This is Isaiah chapter 66, verse 8. Isaiah writes this. Who has heard of such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall the earth be made to give birth in one day? Or shall a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion is in labor, she gave birth to her children. Shall a nation be born in a day? I mean, surely not. This takes time. And yet what we found is that in a day, a nation was born. A resurrection story. Now, this is only the beginning for the Jewish people. Uh, today, there's 7 million Jews living in Israel, but worldwide, there's over 14 million. And so what we see is God is continuing to gather his people back there from all the corners of the earth. I got the opportunity to go to an absorption center while I was in Israel and hear stories of people that were actually coming back, making what they call Eliyah. They come back into their homeland. And uh, interestingly, uh, if they can show that they had at least a grandparent that was of Jewish descent, they can be welcomed in as citizens of Israel. The same criteria Hitler had for exterminating Jews is what they require for becoming full-blooded Jews welcomed into the country. Kind of fascinating. Now, hearing these stories of people, what I found is there was a young couple there from Brazil, of all places. Uh, both had Jewish grandparents. They were... Uh, biochemical engineers or perhaps computer engineers, super smart kids, but no children yet, but they came back to Israel and they didn't know why. <laughs> they said, we, we are not really sure why we came. We had great careers in Brazil. We just felt like it was something we were supposed to do. And so here they are in this absorption center learning Hebrew. They didn't even know how to speak Hebrew, but learning a trade there in this, their, now their home country. Why? Because... Jesus said, I'm going to draw you from the four corners of the earth. They had no earthly clue while they were there. So fascinating to see Scripture actually being fulfilled before our very eyes. Now, continuing this idea in verse 32, Jesus says, Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its, branches, when its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. And so you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away until these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. And so Jesus is recalling them back to the fig tree. You guys might remember a few weeks ago, we talked about the fig tree in the Old Testament is a picture of Israel. And so we saw that in places like Jeremiah 24. It, Jesus is bringing them back to this place to say, remember the fig tree. It's a symbol of Israel. When you see the tree begin to bud, you'll know these things are getting near. The problem is, for 2,000 years, there was no fig tree. The fig tree was nothing but a dead stump. It appeared that the fig tree was completely gone. And so it's not all the fault of the church fathers, um, but throughout church history, what we find is people questioning whether or not the Bible can be interpreted literally or not. Maybe the Bible is just full of symbolism. And as God is given all these promises to Israel, perhaps these promises were actually meant for the church. And so we see the church beginning to glom on to promises given to Israel that were actually not meant for them. Now the issue is, if you take on all of Israel's uh, blessings, you know what else you get? All of Israel's curses. <laughs> you don't get one side. You don't get Mount Ebal without also getting Mount Gerizim. 
you have to take them both on. And so this is why the eschatology of the church going through the tribulation age has been passed down so much. It's because there was no Israel until May 14th, 1948. And now the fig tree has begin, uh, begun to bud. We see it planted there again. What was once dead has now been resurrected, and now we can go back through our scriptures with eyes wide open and go, wow, God, maybe you weren't done with them yet. Which is why, as Paul was addressing uh, the Romans, he said, is God done with Israel? By no means. Because if God doesn't cast off Israel, it means he's not going to cast off you and me either, just because we've had failings. And we've had backslidings. And so it's actually encouraging for us to know this. Now, verse 36, finally, where we wrap up today and try to land the plane. Hopefully we don't crash the plane. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. So when is this all going to take place? Jesus says, even my Father in heaven hasn't told me. He hasn't told the angels. He's keeping this only to himself. Why don't we know the final date? This causes us anxiety. Lord, why wouldn't you just give it to us? Just tell us a day. Because he knows you. He knows you and I. He knows we would procrastinate. We would put this thing off to the very end. Lord, I was going to get around to talking to my neighbor, but football's on. I mean, he knows us all too well. I was going to get my life back in order, but we have all these buts. If ifs and buts were candies and nuts, we'd all have a Merry Christmas. That's what he knows. That's how we feel about things. And so we wouldn't have a sense of urgency. Now, why do we not know the time, but we also know the seasons? We are called, just because we don't know the exact day, we are called to know the times and the seasons. I'm going to go back to 1 Thessalonians quickly. Chapter 5, verse 1, Paul says, But concerning the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write to you. He's saying, look, You've been told, you've been instructed on the times and the seasons. And what Jesus is saying here about the fig tree is you need to know and understand the time. For 2,000 years, it wasn't time. Guess what? Now it's time. You're seeing the seasons begin to take place. And then it's caused us to ask this question when he says this generation will not pass until all these things are accomplished. So what then is a generation? So people for years said, well, 40 years is a generation. Guess what happened? 1988 came and went. Well, maybe God didn't mean 40 years as a generation. Perhaps he meant 80 years as a generation. Well, that's coming up here in just a few years. Maybe 100 years as a generation. I would tell you again, we have no idea what Jesus meant by a generation because to God, a 1,000 years is a day, and a day is as a 1,000 years. And so he wasn't trying to give us an exact time frame. I will also submit to you that in the Greek, the word Jesus used was genia, which could be translated generation. It could also be translated family. It's where we get our word genealogy from. He could be saying this family will not pass away, speaking specifically of the Jewish people until all these things are accomplished. And so people have gotten all caught up into predictions and times, and it causes all of us anxiety. And so the question might be, leaving here today, why in the world did I need to know this? I should have read ahead. See, I knew it. I'm going to go to, back to verse 6 of First Thessalonians chapter 5. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us, who are of the day, be sober putting on the breastplate of faith and of the helmet of the helmet of the excuse me and as the helmet the hope of salvation for God did not appoint us to wrath but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us that whether we wake or sleep we should live together with him therefore therefore refers to what we just talked about therefore comfort each other and edify one another just as you also are doing. All this, all this talk about prophecy, all this talk about the end times, this is actually here in place so that we can be comforted, so that we can know that God's word is true, 
so that we know that we're not appointed to wrath. All these things we look at, this is not for us. But at the same time, we're called by Paul to be alert, to be vigilant, to be out there operating in our society with intentionality. What this also tells us is that God's word is going to be fulfilled. But here's the good news. If God's word is going to be fulfilled, then verses like Romans 8.28 mean a whole heck of a lot more when we're dealing with our stuff. That we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. So here's the deal. If it's not good, he ain't done yet. He's going to keep working until it is good. And so it, it gives us additional confidence. So as we close today, this is what we're reading that Jesus is trying to convey. Be alert to your surroundings. Look around. Be intentional with your conversations, with how you raise your families, with how you interact with coworkers. And then be confident. Be confident that he who started a good work in you will not stop to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. That's precisely what his word says. And so, Father, we thank you and we praise you for studies of things that are difficult for us to understand. They're hard for us to wrap our minds around, and yet you don't want us to be confused. You want us to be able to see things clearly. You want us to be able to operate with alertness and with confidence and with intentionality with those that are around us. Lord, help us to have that confidence, to be brave in those conversations where it feels way too big for us, Lord. Father, we praise you for the opportunity to get to study your word. We thank you for the ways the Old Testament and the New Testament tie together. We thank you so much that your promises are always fulfilled and your answer is always yes and amen. We praise you in Jesus' name. Let's all stand for a closing song. Come, let us worship our King. Come, let us bow at His feet. He has done great things. See what our Savior has done. See how his love overcomes. He has done great things. He has done great things. Oh, hero of heaven, you conquered the grave. You free every captive and break every chain. Oh, God, you have done great things. Dance in your freedom, awaken the light. Oh, Jesus, our Savior, your name lifted high. Oh, God, you have done great things. You've been faithful through every storm. You'll be faithful forevermore. You have done great things And I know you will do it again For your promise is yes and amen Oh, you will do great things You will do great things Oh, hero of heaven You conquered the grave you free every captive and break every chain. Oh, God, you have done great things. We dance in your freedom, awaken the life. Oh, Jesus, our Savior, your name lifted high. Oh, God, you have done great things. Hallelujah, God. Above it all, hallelujah, God, unshakable, hallelujah, you have done great things, you've done great things. Oh, hero of heaven, you conquered the grave, 
king you free every captive and break every chain oh god you have done great things we dance in your freedom awaken the life oh jesus our savior your name lifted high oh god you have done great things and the church says amen All right. Thank you guys so much. Thank you for uh, enduring through that. I want to encourage you to uh, look forward to next week. We're going to wrap this uh, session up in this part, but I also want to encourage you guys to be comforted in prophecy. Be comforted in the promises that are actually in your New Testament and in your Old Testament, just how much you're loved. So God bless you guys. Have a great week.